Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. Today, um, we get to... uh, I'm only preaching half a sermon today. Okay. Oh, good. Wait, who said that? Oh, good. I cannot believe that you just say that such a thing. Uh, this is my good friend, Brad Gartman, everybody. Say hi to Brad. Uh, absolutely, you can applaud for him. Uh, he helps me think about um, these things that we're thinking about today as a church family. And so I want to uh, um, welcome him, and he's going to give us some great things to think about along the way. Here's where we are as we're journeying through the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12 is where we're going to land today. If you need a Bible uh, to look that up, you, there's some on the sides of the tech booth, or if you're a user of the Bible app, please feel free to grab, um, open that app uh, and follow along with our live event, uh, and we'll go there. Uh, I want to just bring us up to speed to this moment, because this is kind of a summary moment before Jesus begins closing the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we begin closing on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, this series. At the end of every big teaching block that Jesus has, he puts this really potent statement um, out there for us. So at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about the availability of the kingdom to anyone and everyone and how transformational it is in our lives. And so uh, he says at the end of that opening section in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, unless your righteousness, the genuine goodness of God at work in you, exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, which is only external, unless your genuine goodness is internal, that the kingdom will come right by and you will miss it altogether. That's chapter five, verse 20. Then he goes on to picture all of the ways that the genuine goodness of God goes to work in us in some very specific areas, anger, um, how we deal with our lusts and desires, how that works itself out in marriage, how it works itself out in the ways that we speak to one another, uh, how it works itself out in doing good to those who may not even want us uh, to do good to them, how we make neighbors um, uh, out of people that we love and so on. And then at the end of that section, at the end of those pictures uh, of how the genuine goodness of God works in our lives, he says, therefore be perfect, complete, whole, as your heavenly father is perfect. That's chapter five, verse 48. We practice these things. We practice them. And um, it it has effect on us. It not only affects the way that we practice, but uh, our practices affects um, how this stuff works in our lives. And so Jesus talks about spiritual disciplines, giving, praying, fasting, and then managing um, uh, how we engage with um, some really kind of... uh, um, pretty normal temptations for most of us, uh, our material goods and our anxiety or worry. And at the end of all of that section, he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The rest of it takes care of itself. In chapter seven, uh, he lays out how this genuine goodness of God affects the relationships in our lives. Don't judge. Don't go do an eye surgery on somebody while you got a big board sticking out of your head. Um, that, that's a bad plan. Uh, uh, don't don't uh, force things on others who um, are uh, not ready for them. Instead, pray. Pray that God would be at work. And so this is, this is the section that we're in here at the end of uh, this section on how the genuine goodness of God works itself out in relationships. He says, chapter 7, verse 12, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Also known as, anybody, the, the golden rule. That's exactly right. It's the golden rule. So um, j- just for clarity's sake and uh, to jump in here, um, God's genuine goodness, his righteousness 
in us goes to work and it bears the fruit of love through us. That's what Hosea ten twelve teaches us. It's the theme that Jesus has picked up on and drug all the way through this um, incredible block of teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. We sow righteousness and we reap love. And this expresses itself in relationships. So uh, four words today I want to highlight. They're all out of the text. Okay. Um, starting verse, we're only looking at verse 12. We're starting with, in my translation, the second word. So whatever, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also for them. This is the law and the prophets, whatever. Um, when he brings this along to us, what he is telling us, I mean, whatever, not like teenage, whatever, whatever. I mean, but like whatever. It's a, it's a fairly encompassing word. Would you agree with that? Whatever. This section over here, would you agree that uh, it's, a, it's a fairly... Okay, yes, whatever. Um, meaning there is no sphere of our life that, that is left untouched by this. So whatever you want others to do, you need to do um, to them. This is the law and the prophet. So just can everybody picture your house right now, whether you're a little one in here or a not so little one in here, just picture your house. How would whatever this, how would this affect your, your, your living room and the interactions and dynamics of your living room or your dining room or your laundry room or your bedroom or whatever room, your back porch room, your front yard? Think about your um, work situation, your office. Some of you are still on uh, uh, Zoom or Teams or, or whatever. Some of you are kind of back um, in, the, in, the, uh, in the office or however that works for you. Th- think about how this word and this principle, this golden rule, would affect, uh, I know we just released, but would affect your classroom. Um, would, would affect uh, that, the, the uh, break room where you are. Would affect... Th- how would um, this particular rule and the all-encompassing nature of this, how would it affect how you sit in the bleachers and watch your kid play soccer, volleyball, baseball, uh, you know, pick your sport of the day? How would it affect that? There's no sphere um, of our lives left untouched. Yeah, there were. And as I was growing up, there were, I, had a, I had an addiction and um, about 10 to 12 years ago, I began to work on that and, uh, and to kind of break that. And uh, it, was, it was an addiction that I, I kind of had been involved in. It. I had kind of it had touched my life all growing up, but it really uh, began to grip me when I was a freshman in high school. Um, I, uh, I, was, I was addicted to church. Like, yeah, that's not bad. No, well, maybe not. But I'm telling you, it was a, it was a sickness that I had, I think. Because, I mean, I went, uh, uh, my freshman year of high school, the youth minister came the same, uh, we joined on the same Sunday. The new youth minister and my family joined church on the same Sunday. And, um, and I just dove full in. I didn't know much better. I just knew that, man, I liked what I had been witnessing at this church and these kids were fantastic they were leaders at school and everything and I went all in Um, I was there Sunday morning Sunday afternoon in youth choir which I don't really sing my brother that was my brother's thing Um, but I did it anyway I did discipleship training after that I did Sunday night service after that we did a youth uh, we went to Pizza Hut with the youth group after that uh, Tuesday night, I came back and did uh, continuing witness training. Wednesday night, I had joy explosion. Thursday night, 
I think there was a prayer meeting. No, it was Thursday morning at 6 a.m. I had a prayer meeting. Um, Friday night, uh, we just tried to stay clean and not uh, go out and get in trouble. Um, Saturday, we prepped for Sunday. And Sunday, we started it all over again. And I pursued that and pursued that over and over and over. All through high school. I got through... through college at Baylor, got through to um, seminary, got through seminary, and in the end, I still was addicted to church. I still love church. Like, I think I love church actually more than I love Jesus. I really do. Um, and then something began to change. A friend of mine and I started a church in League City about 11 years ago, and, um, and in the process of starting a church and determining what we were going to bring with us to the new church, what we were going to keep away um, in that process, I had a wise mentor of mine uh, look, at, look at us over dinner one night and say, don't ever add anything until you know you absolutely have to have it. And we were primarily talking about, you know, worship gatherings and small groups and those kind of things. But what it did is it shook me to my core because I realized that I needed to go through a boiling down part of my life as a Jesus follower, I needed to boil down all of my Christian faith to what was most important. What were the things that I had been giving my life to that weren't actually the most important things? And so I began this journey of always wanting to read and listen and discuss and talk about and stay in the words of Jesus. Whether it was a book I picked up off of a shelf, it better have been, Jesus better have been the central figure in that book. If I picked up my Bible, I always landed on the first four books of the New Testament. I just stayed there and thought, man, if I can learn this enough and get to know this guy enough over the next rest of my life, then, um, then I think I'm going to be okay. But I had to break some cycles. And in that, I boiled it down. And now, today is one of those days, this whatever or in everything, as my translation says, everything about my life is filtered through this question of um, how do I treat other people the way that I want to be treated? How do I give myself to them in a way that is, is different? And I, um, I just come back to the question, how do I love God with all my heart and love my neighbor as myself, but not treat them that way? So everything, if it's us versus them, I always pick them. It drives my wife crazy probably sometimes because I'm always the contrarian. I'm always asking, well, what about that person? I always take the underdog side. I, I, don't, know, I don't know why. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying that's, um, that's the, I'm the yin and she's the yang in our relationship. And that's how it works. Um, but in that, one little sample of how this plays out for me is how I sing songs nowadays. Um, we just sang a song a while ago. The words in the song were, Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God chases me down and fights till I'm found. And man, I used to, for years, I would have sung that song like, I'm the one. I'm the one that needed chase down, and I did. But now, seeing it through a different lens, and this lens of the, what we are calling the golden rule today, I see that and say, I sing it with this, oh, what it, would it be like if we as Jesus people had an overwhelming sense of never-ending reckless love that chased down others and fought for them until they're found. And it changes the way I see everything. And I hope 
that's kind of where we're heading this morning. Yeah, and so th- this, this whole idea of whatever, it, it points to not only the consumption of our own lives, but the kind of consuming nature of the kingdom generally. Everything gets subsumed under this. It's not just my religious life that comes under this. It, it is... Uh, my entire life. Uh, people think of the kingdom, depending upon your church background and what's going on. People think of the kingdom as heaven. Let's not be those. The, there are two different words in the Bible. One of them is kingdom. One of them is heaven. And those two things, they're not the same. They're not the same. Our life in the kingdom readies us to live with uh, God forever in this experience called heaven. That is true. Heaven is a byproduct of us being in the kingdom. And so the, the all-consuming nature of that is not uh, then and there. It is here and it is now. It's why Jesus talked about the kingdom as uh, the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. Um, it's in your midst. It's available to you. I mean, he talks about it in those terms. Otherwise, we get to be people uh, and no, nobody likes these people. And we don't want to be these people. We, we are people who are like, okay, God, thank you for forgiving me of my sins. Thank you for uh, promising me a spot in heaven when I die. And I'm just going to hold on until then. As if Jesus doesn't have anything to say to us about how we love our neighbor, about how we raise our kids, about how we relate to the spouse, about how we do the things at work, about how we do all of our lives. The kingdom is for here. It's for now. It is, it is consuming all of us. Not just a portion of us, which leads us to the next part. Um, uh, So whatever you wish, that's our second word. Whatever you wish that others would do for you, do also for them. This is the law and the prophets. The kingdom is so consuming that it even goes down to the level of desire. It works at the level of desire. And it's always at work at the level of desire. Not... um, it's not only desire that where the kingdom works, that, that is true, but it is the place where Jesus goes to work the hardest and wants to work the most. He refuses to set up shop. He refuses to take up residence in the land of superficial because people can change their behavior and miss the kingdom altogether. People can change the way that they interact with others and still miss the kingdom. Furthermore, it's good news for you and for me. Uh, I'll, I'll let you off the hook. It's good news for me that Jesus doesn't just deal with the superficial parts of my life because my brokenness runs deeper than the superficial parts of my life. Nobody said amen to that. If, I, if Jesus only worked in my land of superficial, there would be a whole section of my life that was left untouched by his resurrection power. By his kingdom's work. And it's good news for me that he works at even those deep, deep levels. So how do we determine what the levels are? How do we know what, where we are? Where is our level of brokenness? I mean, you and I both know that we have things in our life that aren't God-honoring. I mean, nobody's, nobody, probably none of us walked in here this morning and thought, man, I'm going to really fake everybody out. Um, in the end, we know where we're broken. Um, to help us understand this, a guy named John Mark Comer kind of pointed out some things to me this last week, and I want to share with you. Ethicists tend to tell us that there are three basic rules that we all uh, operate under in our relationships. Um, we are coming at it from the golden rule today. How many of you have heard of the golden rule before today? This isn't your first time, right? I mean, you probably weren't like me and thought the golden rule was the fact that Baylor wins basketball championships. Um, But in the end, like, we know the golden rule. Now, there are also two other rules, though, that go with that. Did anybody know that there are two other rules that 
that we can live by. Okay, I'm honestly, I'm not making this up. This is, this is coming at it from a different perspective. The first rule that I want to tell you about is the wooden rule. And the wooden rule is a rule that says, uh, I treat others the way they treat me. Okay? I treat others the way that they treat me. How does that play out in our everyday life? Well, it plays out very simply. You're mean to me, then I'm mean to you. You say something nasty about me, then I post something nasty about you. You cut me off in traffic, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ride around you and I'm going to cut you back off before you get off on the, off the highway. But it doesn't always have to be negative. It can also be positive. Because we operate this way, we've learned it since we were wee toddlers, we operate in a way that, hey, I'm going to trade something with you. So you say, oh, I like your shirt. Oh, well, I like your shirt too. Oh, I really like that new car of yours. Man, well, that new, that new car of yours is really awesome also as well. And we tend to say all of these things, niceties, back and forth to each other, right? Our kids see this. I mean, we, if you've got a toddler, you know. If you've had a toddler, you remember. In all of that, it, that's the most basic way that we start to treat other people is we mirror whatever's being done to us. We mirror it back and forth. The second rule is not wooden, but now it's silver. Has anyone heard of the silver rule? Do any of you have the silver rule on your refrigerator at home? Okay, the silver rule says whatever you would hate to be done to you, don't go do it to other people. Okay, so whatever you would not want done to you, don't go do that to other people. You see, it sounds kind of like what Jesus says. It's pretty close. And you might think, well, it's basically the same thing. It's kind of in the same ballpark. Well, it's, in, it's different in a very important way. Because with the silver rule, it's easy for us to not go and do things to other people, right? It doesn't require any effort or any work for us to not do something that is damaging to someone else. And so... Jesus enters into this conversation regarding this silver rule. Every major religion has that rule. Whether it's Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, whatever it is, there, everyone has a version of the silver rule that says don't treat others in ways that you would not want to be treated. Jesus changes it. He flips it on its head and says, do to everyone how you would want to be done too. So you change it. Don't just observe, don't just not do something, but actually move toward that person and how that they set up. So for you and me today, we have to ask ourselves, where do we fall? Because in the most immature state, in the most rudimentary behavior issues that we have, we would fall under the wooden rule. Some of us haven't grown out of our toddler stage and we still do the same thing. If somebody says something ugly to me, then I'm going to say something ugly back to them. Others of us just live our lives apart from everyone else and just say, hey, if I don't do anything negative to someone else, then, you know, I'm going to be okay. And then there's a select few of us that are going to take the challenge that we're given today and actually change some of the things that we actually move forward and do for others what we would want done for us. And so that, that inversion there, away from quid pro quo kind of thing or whatever you want to call it, that inversion is the golden rule. And, and so what I wish for somebody is what God wants. Not, not, not just what I 
think that they want, but like I, I want what God wants for them. This is what love is. When God's genuine goodness goes to work in us and it bears the fruit of love in relationships, that's what comes out of it is that I want what God wants for you. I, I want what is best for you and what is best is what God wants. And so in first John chapter four, there's this beautiful passage about how the love of God comes into our lives and then it expresses itself through love of neighbor. And so much so that it, it comes down to it where it says, Hey, look, you can't say you love God and not love your brother. That's not how it works. It, it naturally flows out to others. And so I end up wanting um, what God wants. So let me give you two things here just really quickly. I'll give you one. Brad, I'll give you the next one. Um, there are two things that I just want to say out loud so that people don't misinterpret Jesus. Um, and, and the reason I think these are important to say is because people do misinterpret Jesus. Number one, this is not permission for vengeance. Meaning people misread Jesus and here's what they hear. Oh, Jesus, you want me to treat others the way they want to be treated. They're treating me this way. Therefore, they must want to be treated like that. Oh, good. (laughs) That's what I wanted to do anyway. This is not that. This is treat them as whatever would bring God's best for them into their lives. It's not permission for vengeance. Don't, Don't think otherwise. Otherwise, you misread him altogether. Yeah, and that's important, I, I think, to, to hang on to that because um, the second one is similar um, in a way. It's don't misread it into manipulation. Um, I, you know, my wife and I, in our first years of marriage, we read a book. Um, it's this little obscure book. I'm sure nobody's heard of it called The Five Love Languages. And, uh, and in that, basically, in my immature husband role, um, what I would read is, okay, um, I, if I do this, then she'll do this. <laughs> so if I um, hit on acts of service, then my wife might actually give a gift. I'll get her to give me a gift if she, because that's my language maybe. And so we can use it and we can look at this text and say, okay, I'm going to do this, but in that I am simply making some sort of transaction. And we treat people like they're vending machines almost. That we put in our coins of kindness and then expect some kind of reward back on the back end of that. And we've got to understand that people are not transaction pieces, but they're actual image bearers of Jesus. And in that, we treat them well, not because of what they can do for us, but because of who they are. In any way, shape, or form. You see, we have to think about how we would want to be treated if we were in their shoes. Because we can easily look at this and say, the way I want to be treated is this way. Now, I'm a, I'm a guy that uh, when I was in, well, in my 20s and in, in that range, man, I wanted to have guys that would just speak truth to my face, you know, like would get into it with me. We'd argue and we'd We'd hammer out texts together and we would argue about stuff all the time. And uh, it's just lunch with Trent now. But, um, but we would argue. And I like that. I'm not afraid of that. I don't mind that. It, it kind of stirs me up a little bit. The problem with that is if I treat my wife the way that I want to be treated, um, she shuts down and I won't hear from her for a month. Because she does not want me to pound it and get in her face about it and argue. I mean, I can't even raise my voice hardly, like, or else it gets uncomfortable. So it's important for me to understand what she wants and how she needs 
the attention so that I speak that to her in her language, so that I communicate that to her and what she wants and what she desires. And I put my needs down and my wants down in order to meet those needs in her life. But if we don't take the time to get to know the other person, we don't know exactly how they want to be treated, what would be best for them. And so we tend to back off from that. And that, that holding that out, that we've got to be careful. We don't misread this as some sort of vengeance and we don't misread it as some sort of manipulation to others. So we're not going, whatever it is, in everything, whatever it may be, what we wish is important. And to be clear on what we wish is that we wish for God's best for the other person, right? Now we're going to move into what's the third word, is others. Others. Now, it's important here, and I told Trent earlier, man, I, I just kind of connected this. Um, Jesus says to... He tells us in this, basically, to do to others. Now, others is an important word. Others is not one another, okay? It's others. And here in this text, others is a, a Greek word called anthropoi, okay? An anthropoi. The Greek word for love is philos, or phylo, phylo, phylos, whatever it is. See, he's... I read it, he knows it. So that's the difference between us. Um, but in that, if you're going to put anthropoi next to phila, what will it be? Philanthropy, right? The love of others, the care for others. You give to other people that may never give anything back to you. And there's another word that we get the city name Philadelphia. Everybody heard of Philadelphia? Yes, we've all heard of Philadelphia, which is the city of what? Brotherly love, okay? That Greek word is adelphoi. Adelphoi is like a brother-sister kind of love. It's a family. It's They're my tribe. They're my people. And I'm going to treat them. So if I came in here and I wanted to teach the golden rule to Heritage Park Baptist Church, I would have to say, I would use the word adelphoi in how you treat one another. How you treat each other is how you treat brothers and sisters in the family, the tribe of HPBC. But Jesus doesn't use that word. Jesus uses the first word, anthropoi. He uses a word that indicates to his Jewish hearers at that time, it's not the people in my tribe, it's the people outside of my tribe. And this is how we have to approach this. Because it's easy for us, and culture tells us today, hey, gather the people that believe like you, that think like you, that speak like you, that look like you. And all that does is create some big echo chamber that we don't have any variety in our relationships if we do that. And so Jesus is helping the people get out of that and say, hey, reach out to others. It is the very opposite. Just put it in context. It's the very opposite of judging. You remember how he started the chapter in chapter 7? Um, don't judge. Don't go pull the speck out of somebody else's eye while you got a board in yours. It's the very opposite of this. In judging, what I want to do is use faults and frailties of the other person, whoever it may be. And I want to make myself feel better or get what I want or just generally brush them off and consider them a nobody. This is the opposite of that. This turns that whole thing uh, upside down and, and over. I, it, is, it is completely different. And because of that, I think um, it, it, is, it is thinking about 
what I may want or what they may want or even uh, what, what is best for them in that situation and then expressing that. That, that is so critical. Now, th- this is kind of the pastoral parentheses moment here. Will you miss it on occasion? What's the answer to that? Yes, every husband in here has intended good for a wife and somehow it didn't come out. Can the husbands let me know that they're with me here? Yes, yes, yes. We'll miss it on occasion, but, but let's not miss for the wrong reasons. Let's miss just because we didn't quite get it right. Let's miss for the right reasons. Yeah. For me, the more intimate the relationship, it can be harder. You know, when I look at my relationships and wonder, okay, who, who do I manage this well with? I came out of a, of a customer service background in retail work, and the customer's always right. And I kind of, that was in my DNA. I mean, that's how it rolls, you know. It doesn't matter how wrong they are, they're always right. Um, and so it's easy for me to look at people on the outside and kind of embrace that and embrace them because, um, because I don't have a set of expectations, but when I know someone, I spend every, you know, free moment of the day with these people, you know, my wife, my daughter, my son, it's easy for me to maybe not fall, not um, exercise this challenge quite as well. Um, this last week I was walking and after a rain, my trails behind my house have water that kind of goes over them. Sometimes it goes all the way over them and you get your shoes and your socks all wet when you go through it. Other times it recedes away and you've got half of the sidewalk that is clear and the other half is full of water. And this was what it was on my morning. Um, I'm walking down the path and I see a spot up in front of me. Um, I see that it kind of recedes out, but my right away is clear. Everything's all good. I'm like, man, that's good. I'm not going to have to jump over it because that's an ugly sight. I'm not going to have to, you know, tiptoe through it because that's not much better. I'm going to get to walk straight on the, on the dry path. But I have a problem. There's an obstacle. There's another couple walking from the opposite direction coming toward me, and it looks like we're going to hit that spot right at the exact same time. And I know what they're going to do. They're not going to want to step in the water and tiptoe through it. They're not going to want to jump over it and risk falling and making me laugh. So they, I know what they want to do. And I know what I get to do. Because it's my right. I get to go on the right side of that path and I'm of that water. And I'm not going to miss that. But what happens is, uh, I remember what we're talking about. <laughs> And, and a trivial thing like which side of the path I'm going to walk on now takes on a different, different meaning for me. And I ask, what would I want? And I would not want to have to break stride. So what I do is I stop. I let them walk around it. And they walk past me. They say, thank you. I said, you're welcome. Have a good day. They said, it is. And we, and we move forward. And I just laughed for about 15 or 20 more steps after that. That that is the picture because oftentimes in our life, you and I have people that we come into contact with outside of our tribe that are walking and moving in a completely opposite direction than we are. They don't believe the same things that we believe. They don't uh, sing the same songs that we sing. They don't listen to the same radio stations, the same talk shows. They don't post the same things on the internet. They are opposite of us. And we have every right to stay in our lane. We may be correct, but we have that, that lane. And sometimes God is calling us to step aside, stop, and let them walk by so that they don't get trampled over. 
You see, treating others requires us to listen and learn from them in order to love them better. And that's where we want to move toward. So last word, do. So whatever you wish that others would do for you, do also for them. Do also for them, for this is the law and the prophets. What Jesus has done here at the end of his kind of last major block of teaching is summarize uh, the Old Testament law. Now, Paul picks this up in other places, Romans 13, Galatians 5. Uh, Jesus says it later, uh, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So what he's done is he has made concrete for us um, the, the summary of the law and the prophets. It is the concrete, if you will, restatement of love your neighbor as yourself. Why that's important is this. Um, the, the loving God is more than loving your neighbor, but it is never less than that. Church family, listen. Loving God, yes, indeed, is more than loving your neighbor, but it is never less than that ever. There are other, other parts of our relationship with God. There are other expressions of how we love him, but it's never less than love of neighbor. Never less. Never less. As we think about the others in our life, it's not just your family member. It's also the stranger. It's not just your friend. It's also your enemy. It's not just the same gender, but it's also the different gender. It's not just the same color of skin, but it's also different colors of skin. It's not just the same religion, but it's also different religions. That's how broad Jesus is taking this and saying, guys, open it up. And in all that we do, lead with love because people are not positions. And I've learned from my from raising a daughter who's now 20 years old in a different generation than I was brought up, but watching her and listening to her hurt and her heart hurt because people around her talk about positions And all she can hear are the people behind those positions. And so to hear that and to know that, I have to remember that people are people to be loved, not just positions to be held. And so those things that we have the right of way on and then it's our position and it's our path, it's our lane, we still can stop back, let the other person come into our lane for a little while and then move out of it, go the other direction, and we still know where we're heading, but we've left them with a sense that, hey, they chased after me. I didn't deserve it. I didn't do anything to earn it. But they gave it to me anyway. They gave me space to be who I am. And they gave me space to listen and learn and love on my own timetable. And so we have a chance to do that. And there's also, in these in these days, not only do we have to understand that if you and I have God's love in us, that it's our responsibility to push that love through to other people. And the greatest thing about this, we've been talking about this for weeks. There is no unmediated relationship in the kingdom of God for those of us who carry Christ with us. So when I go to lunch with Trent, it's not just Trent and me at lunch. We take Jesus, okay? Now, I told him, this seems kind of cheesy, okay? He said, yeah, but people remember cheese and the yellow shirt. Golden rule, see? Golden rule. There it is. Yep. Baylor winning championships. Um, when we go out with other, when we move towards someone that is different than us, when we move towards someone that is other, outside of our tribe, we don't go alone. 
We don't, we're not in it by ourselves. That Jesus mediates that conversation. And his goal for that person is to bring that person to himself. Our goal for that person, if it is in alignment with Jesus, is to help move that person one step closer to Jesus. And we allow that to happen. So what happens is, is if, if I'm relating to Brad, if you will, directly and without mediation, okay, without, without the mediating presence of Jesus, if, if we kind of take him out of the way, so to speak, th- then the attachment here is what, is what is critical. And the attachment then will cause the other things to drift away, meaning truth will be relativized. How many of you know a relationship in someone's life, maybe your own life, where it was the attachment that was the ultimate and therefore truth went away in the relationship? You, you saw compromise happen because of it. I think most of us do. And so Jesus doesn't allow that. He doesn't. Uh, and furthermore, what, one of the things that uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Life Together says is that not only um, th- does truth get relativized, but also uh, the, the things that, um, that that attachment there is so stressful and the anxiety around keeping the attachment in place is so stressful that you lose joy. One of the first things to go is laughter in a relationship. You, you think about the relationships and the, 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 that you have. There's wisdom in that. Versus if Jesus is mediating all of our relationships, there's a couple of things that are true. Number one, uh, there will be a lot of prayer. There will be a lot of prayer. Why? Because I know that I can't change the person that I'm in a relationship with. I have to ask Jesus to do so. And secondly, um, the, the other thing that will happen is there will be the, the fruit of the Spirit born. There will be love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And it will show up in these relationships. When Jesus mediates the relationship as, as it is designed to happen in the kingdom life with him. Uh, that, that's the kind of thing that will happen. Boil all of this down to, to this one thing here. Um, in, I, I say this because this, this, uh, this is the one thing I, w- I really want you to walk away from. from here's it, here it is. It, Jesus didn't just teach us the golden rule. He didn't like take ethics and like ramp it up. Jesus didn't just model this for us. He was it for us. Jesus is the golden rule for you and for me. He saw whatever we needed. We were the others. And he, he wished for us what would be God's best for us and therefore did something about it. When he came and he gave his life on the cross in, um, in our place and for our sins and rose again to give us a life that lasts forever is in the kingdom and readies us to live with him forever. This is Jesus He's, he's not just telling us about this. He is the golden rule. So here's how I want to close. I want to take just a moment and let you ponder this. Wh- which, which of those four words landed hardest on you? Whatever. Wish. Others. Do. Out of those four, wh- where do you need Jesus to do the work in you? And maybe the first step for you this morning is simply to give your life to Christ. He's not just talking to you, folks. He wants to do something in your life. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, if you're watching online, you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to put your trust in him and surrender your life to him. Ask him to forgive you of your sins and he will. Ask him to come into your life and he will. And he will begin the process of readying you to live with him forever. Let me pray for us and then we'll have a brief song of response. Um, Father, for the sake of your work here, for everything that has happened already, for everything that's been said already, I pray that you would work 
um, and continue the work. And then um, ultimately, Father, seal up the work so that the things are really in us. Let them be really in us. And out of, out of the soil of our hearts, Father, may these kinds of things that we've been talking about grow. May, may the consuming nature of the kingdom be one of the things that grows in us. May, may our um, outward-looking focus, looking for others who are around us, may it be part of us. And I, on and on. I, I pray, Father, that you would do the things in us that you want to do and do them for Jesus' sake. And if there is somebody here or who's watching online who doesn't know you, I pray that because of your incredible and very reckless love that you would draw them to yourself. Let them know of your great tenderness and faithfulness and of your love for them. We set that now before you in Christ's name. Amen.